Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, everybody. It's Grace again. I've had a lot of people actually tell me that they still struggle with who's who. So this is Grace. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm really bad at these these intros when I'm on my own. Coming to you with a brand new, or sort of new, interview episode. Um, we've had some fun ones the last two weeks with Katya and Trixie and then Mary Beth Barone. So we wanted to show you that we have a very compelling editorial mix and throw in something uh, with a little bit more, I don't know, substance. We interviewed Breely, who's a writer that we both really love. Her book, Eggshell Skull, you have no doubt heard of, probably read was just a massive sensation when it came out in Australia. Um, if you're not an Australian listener, uh, try and get your mitts on it wherever you can. It's basically uh, Brie wrote the story of her own experience trying to bring an abuser to justice while she was a uh, like a clerk for a high court judge in Australia. She was a, a lawyer. She's incredibly intelligent and the book really highlighted just how difficult the legal system is when it comes to pursuing assailants in uh, sexual assault cases. And really it turned Brie into this kind of formidable voice in Australia. She wrote Eggshell Skull before Me Too happened and kind of predicted a lot of the conversations that we went on to have quite soon after the book was published. Um, and she's now a columnist for the Saturday paper and a writer in multiple places. She's had two other books published since then, including Who Gets to Be Smart, which came out this year. And I did an interview with her 
Fatih magazine when that uh when that book came out and she's just a fascinating incredibly intelligent person a beautiful writer and an amazing speaker and we really wanted to get her on to talk about why it is that me too has been so stunted in Australia um and I think after the podcast series everybody knows and there was a big uh quarterly essay that came out a couple of months ago that touched on the same topic I think that it's just a question that we need to keep asking and thinking about and talking about. So without further ado, here is the wonderful Brie Lee in conversation with AWD. Um, anyway, we'll jump into things if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah. It's been, uh, uh, I do lots of events, but it's been a while since I did one about me. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I forgot. Maybe. I was like, oh, what do people even ask? <laughs> what to talky talk? Yeah. <laughs> Were you able to do, wait, so you had Beauty came out and you've got breaks mm. coming out next year. So you, you didn't technically mm. miss a book tour, did you? No, that's, okay. I am. Um, I am infinitely grateful. It has just been, um, it's been very lucky timing for me. So I toured beauty for about three weeks in November. Um, and then was, it, there were originally the idea would have been that maybe brains would come out in November this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was when I thought it was going to be an essay and then it turned into a whole book. So we pushed it back to next year anyway, um, which turned out to just be lucky. Um, mm. I've been really doing a lot more events for other authors than I normally might because in particular for debut authors, um, because they're just God, like anything I can do to help them get extra um, airtime. Because if I just, I shudder to think of how disappointing it would be to spend how many years of your life working on a book and then to have it come out when you can't do your tour. It's really, I feel, feel for them. It's really heartbreaking. That's really nice of you though, to do that um it is I just really feel for them <laughs> yeah because your book was like such a runaway success and I think you said to the point where you you didn't expect it so it's like oh yeah yeah <laughs> and I mean there's no doubt in my mind that um 2018 in especially like mid 2018 was just the perfect time for a book like eggshell skull to come out like if it had have come out a year before mm, like it, it would have like done something maybe um and if it came out a year after it would have been like too late for the wave it just mm-hmm. like it just That's hit, so true. it just hit right at the peak like I am under no illusions that like yes it was a lot of hard work writing it whatever but I was also just very very lucky that it came out exactly when it did yeah and so Iksha Skull is a memoir that describes your two-year struggle to bring a man who assaulted you to justice and it's an incredibly written book but it's also quite a damning account of the flaws with the current legal system especially when it comes to victims um so we just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about the particular roadblocks that you experienced that you think stop people from reporting yeah absolutely so I mean most people don't report um, and that's whether it's something, um, not that it means it's less severe, but, you know, from a range of things like sexual harassment in the workplace, people don't report it, to a one-off incident of a serious sexual assault, 
to a ongoing, you know, grooming style relationship or a continued exploitation or situation of domestic and family violence with continued assault. Like people just don't report it. And the reasons for that are numerous. From my personal experience and also having received so much correspondence about this, the very, very sort of simple and deep reason that people don't report is because they're afraid that they'll be called a liar and that people won't believe them. Um, because unfortunately, that still happens a lot. Um, because, and one of the reasons I think we still just don't believe, in particular women who come forward, um, is because it's like the statistics are so damning. In Australia, it's at least one in five women who've been sexually assaulted. Um, and I think it's quite terrifying for most people to think about who the one in five men they know are who do this kind of stuff um, because they're not monsters. You can't just pick them on sight. Like they're just regular looking men with regular looking lives who move in and amongst us. And it's a terrifying thing to, to acknowledge that those are perpetrators of serious sexual assault. Um, the other reason people don't, the other reason people might sort of tell uh, their, say, say somebody might feel like they can tell a family or friend, but not actually report it to the police is because, I mean, God, where do you even start? A real issue we have in Australia is that survivors are still sort of playing Russian roulette when they call up the cops, depending on which state or territory even they live in, because there are very different standards in how police are trained and what their responses are to specifically sex crime issues. Um, and the conviction rates are extraordinarily low. Um, it's a very long and grueling process. So my matter took two years from when I first made a complaint, um, you know, approximately to when it went to court. And that is a mercifully short time. Sex crime matters easily can take three, four more years. Um, and that's if you're lucky enough that the person gets charged, if you're lucky enough that it actually goes to court. Um, and you go to the police to make a complaint not knowing any of those factors that are all completely out of your control and you are the last one to know about any of them going forward. Mm. Um, so I think it's pretty obviously accurate when lots of survivors refer to the court's or legal process as just a whole second victimization. Yeah, and your experience was, I'm very hesitant to use the word easier, but you, the fact that you were a mm. trained lawyer, you'd worked in a district court, your father was a police officer, you at least had a familiarity with these systems which can in and of themselves just be very intimidating to people. So can you kind of see how given the way that courts even look or the way that lawyers speak or the kind of classist element there, how that could be an extra barrier? Yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. That's like one of the reasons I really wanted to write the book was because I feel like I had every possible thing you could need in a toolkit, you know, like, like, you, like the things you listed. But even on top of that, I'm an able-bodied like a tertiary educated white woman whose English is their first language. Um, and also I have to say specifically Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women have very strong, good, valid historical reasons to never go to the police. Um, that the, the quote marks justice system or the legal system um, is just so, so brutal to black Australians. Um, there are very good reasons why for a lot of marginalised groups, the thought of even trying to report to the cops is just not an option. Um, and so I was very conscious of pretty much how 
excruciating I found those two years, how hard I found that entire process. And yet I had everything. It should have been the easiest for me. And there were still many times where I almost dropped out um, and like withdrew my complaint or or just, you know, pulled the plug on the whole thing. Um, And I think that's abysmal that if somebody who has everything I have still almost couldn't handle it in many different ways, um, how is how is the average person supposed to supposed to try and get justice? It's pretty much impossible. And um, like you just touched on before, I think the other really hard part of it is that we're trained to think of sexual assault looking really violent and scary. Um, you're trained to think it's a stranger that's grabbing you in a park. Um, so then it can take women years and years to actually realise what's happened to them. Um, yeah. And, that, you know, and that nothing they did was their fault. And again, like the perfect victim narrative that we're given um to to work your brain around that um and like you said the fact that we think it's like this crazy monster or stranger and you Mm. when you think of someone who would sexually assault someone you think of like a really scary horrible person when in fact it's like it could be a friend a brother someone in the pub beside you um and I'm wondering how you think we can kind of change that narrative because that's so ingrained in us that it's stopping so many women from even thinking that what happened to them was assault. Yeah, and we've had the statistics for a long time. So the really frustrating thing is that the vast majority, the vast, vast majority of sex crime happens between two people who know each other in a domestic setting and without the use of a weapon. Hmm. So those three factors tell you everything you like all of the core elements that you need to know about the nature of this type of thing, which is not that it's a stranger, not that the person who has been targeted can't um, sort of fight back for fear for their lives. There's like a way deeper level of coercion and terror and freeze response going on. Um, And it's in a domestic setting. It's not, it's not, you know, out in a park. It's the exact opposite of the stranger jumping out of the bushes in a park. That what we're told. Um, and unfortunately, um, women are at most risk during their teenage years. Um, and they're at most risk from an older male who is known to them. Um, and it's just opportunistic. A lot, like the, so many of these crimes are basically just men knowing that they can do these activities and get away with it. Um, and yeah, like you said, and like I said before, they're not monsters. They're just regular dudes. Um, and like, I'm not sure how we can make that message louder and clearer because we've known this for a long time. And like the, the, these statistics, for example, um, and I think Me Too has helped because just so many people sharing their stories and most of those stories are from a domestic setting between people who are known to each other Mm. um and whether those shares stories are shared um like publicly and outwardly or if they've just been shared between two people or, or within friendship groups um the only thing most of us have within our power to control is whether or not we believe people when they come to us And that's really easy when we don't know the man involved Um, and when it gets really hard and when you see people, in my opinion, being cowards uh, when somebody makes a disclosure to them, um, but it's a mate 
or it's a brother or it's a husband or a boyfriend um, and it just becomes really uncomfortable and might cost them something to actually believe a disclosure. And that's when um, people's, people are really challenged um, to express the courage of their convictions. Yeah, it's like people can't, um, people can't understand that it can be a guy that's really nice and kind and caring and um, yep. the, the lovely one that could also do this. Like they just can't get their brains around it. And I feel like I found that a really hard thing to get my brain around. Like when I think of someone who sexually assaults someone, I think of someone like Brock Turner and think of them as being a monster. But if you're thinking of one of your guy mates and then you're adding the elements of all of the good things you know about them, plus this really horrible thing they did, it can be very hard to get your brain around it. But yeah, you have to. It's like a, a convenience thing for people where they just don't want to go there into acknowledging that humans are fucking complicated and things aren't black and white. So it ends up like re-silencing survivors because... The people mm. around them just don't want to deal with the yeah. problem. Yeah. And there's this weird thing that I've seen happen so many times where there's this ugly grey zone between people like not believing a survivor and people just not wanting to believe a survivor. And yeah, somebody of, like, like make... convenience. Yeah. And somebody disclosing something to them and then like purely because they don't want to have to believe that story they will choose not to believe that story Mm. um and it's just really sad and until each one of us knows for sure that we would do the right thing in this situation like that um i don't know how else you get progress on a sort of societal level on this stuff Mm. and it's hard because it's like what even is the right thing like the right thing's obviously believing your friend but then if they're not gonna report it it's like like i think I think if you told people that you were sexually assaulted, but you knew that like, because you're not going to the police, they probably will just keep being friends with this person. It's like, you're obviously not going to tell anyone. Like it's, I don't know. Yeah, I know. It's also like, no, it's not even really, it's just like, it always has to be up to the individual survivor to choose Mm. what they want to do about anything ever. And if the survivor wants to tell their friendship group, so that they can all still go to the pub together and not have to sit across the table from their rapist and they never want to do anything else. They just don't want that person in their friendship group anymore. That's yeah. a valid response. Yeah. Also, if they tell their friendship group and want somebody to carpool with them back and forward from the cop shop when they have to make all of their statements, that's a valid response. Like everyone will have such individual responses and all of those different types of responses need to be respected and supported. That's all it is. Mm. Yeah. Something I've heard you talk about is the fact that these misconceptions that we've just talked about also affect the way the legal system prosecutes these crimes in the sense that all of the ways we collate evidence for sex crimes is completely at odds with how they play out in real life in terms of the expectation there'll be CCTV footage when most happen in a domestic house or that there'll be physical evidence when most people don't report on average for 20 years. Mm. Um, What do you see as being the ways that the legal system can change to meet uh, the way these crimes actually play out? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there are slight differences at like the sort of broadly speaking, the three different stages. So um, 
the way you can like sort of mostly understand it from an outsider's perspective is that you have the first stage, which is with the police, and the second stage is with the prosecution, and then the third stage is at court. And obviously your matter might only ever get to stages one and two, or it might go to stages one, two, and then three. At the first stage with police, there are different, yeah, as I mentioned before, there are really different um, standards to which police get trained to deal with sex crime matters and sex crime investigations in different states and territories in Australia. Um, but at the moment, in somewhere like Queensland, which is where I'm from and where the book is set, um, it's still, yeah, it's still really Russian roulette. There are lots of good cops, but there are also lots of really crap cops. Um, and decisions about whether or not to go and interview people, um, whether or not to take certain supplementary statements, like every sort of stage of the investigation involves a police officer exercising their individual discretion. And so you can, and there's like not really good records kept on, on that stuff. And so it's pretty easy to imagine why you might get a dickhead who sort of still believes in rape myths and kind of thinks you might be exaggerating or you'd had too much to drink. So what the heck's he going to do about it? You can imagine how that would make a survivor's life really, really hard to get their matter taken seriously. Um, and then you, if the police do put together this whole um, brief of evidence and they recommend to the Department of Public Prosecutions that, that the person goes to court, the person is charged and then the prosecutor gets it. And the prosecutor looks at the brief and either like sends it back to the police because they need more stuff or they decide to um, put it up for trial. And when they're deciding whether or not they think that brief of evidence is strong enough, they're also deciding not necessarily what they believe as an individual, but they're deciding what they think is worth putting in front of the court. And unfortunately, if it is a stranger rape or if you have cuts and bruises all over you, you have a much more compelling case in front of a jury because of these rape myths. And because juries love to see this idea of quote marks, hard evidence or like, you know, CCTV footage or whatever. Um, and then you get to the court stage where a huge and very, very deep problem that I have with the way trials are run in Australia is that the complainant is not a party to the proceedings, which is understandable because it's the Crown, like it's the government that is up against somebody who's charged with a criminal offence. But what that means is that com the complainant is only a witness in their own proceedings. And what happens in court is that the prosecutor acts in the best interests of the court and a defence barrister acts in the best interests of the defendant and nobody is there in the courtroom for the complainant. And so it creates, in my opinion, a, a silencing and a real underdog fight for the complainant to have their best interests specifically and individually fought for during proceedings. Um, and there's, yeah, the book is, I feel like it's full of a million examples of just really like mundane process and procedural stuff where this, the system is just not set up with women and children in mind. It came across from the UK at invasion and it came across at a time when women and children were still under the dominion of men, very specifically and deliberately. And the law is in a perpetual state of trying to catch up with the fact that we also have human rights. When you think about it, like we were talking so much about um, the police system, just off the back of like the Black Lives Matter movement in the US, and even just how wild it is when you think about it that the police are this one stop shop for everything from like a burglary to a sexual assault. 
it just seems very backwards that you wouldn't have a trained team of like first responders to deal specifically to that matter. Yeah, we're seeing a little bit of progress on that. And I must say, I think I did a like a workshop last week with some um, research and advocacy organizations and the women from Victoria had some better examples of how that state was responding. And I also know, for example, in Queensland, up in one of the northern towns, I want to say it's Townsville, um, they've just extended for another, I think, five years or thereabouts, a specialist sex crime, like, sort of station with specialist trained resources and people. Um, and they finished a sort of trial run of that. And then um, the government said, yep, and greenlit it for another whatever number of years. Um, so like, right. Yeah, things like that, are, there are little examples like peppered that are starting to happen. Um, and it's unfortunately also then when you know that that the powers that be know that things like that work and then you ask, well, why isn't that everywhere? That's when you realise that, oh, like if people actually cared about this, they would fund it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when it gets really disheartening when it's like we've known these stats for a long time and we've known what, um, would really help with a lot of these roadblocks for a long time. And if money is the only thing in the way, then that just tells you what the people's sort of lack of priorities are. Yeah. Yeah. Something we wanted to talk to you about specifically was, um, so last week a few photographers in the Australian fashion industry started coming out with stories of their own uh, either harassment or assaults on set. Um, and a few of them are, are friends of mine and Izzy's and they were kind of talking to us and saying, we're ready to come out. We're ready to speak out. We've got all these people that have stories. How do we go to the media? Who do we talk to? Who do we get in contact with? And it was so disheartening to realize I had to tell them, oh my God, you're so brave. And this is so amazing. You're doing this. I can pass you on to relevant journalists, but I don't think anyone will be able to pick it up. And that was the reality of the situation. And I've spoken to so many editors over the years or even lawyers at publications I've worked for where even if you have 15 people saying, or sorry, saying this thing, it's almost impossible to get a story across. So I was wondering if you could talk about why it is that Me Too is so stalled in Australia. Yeah, so Australia is uh, different, very different from the US and UK in particular, just picking the sort of two other English-speaking um, places that we often compare ourselves to, very different in terms of our defamation laws. Um, and I am one of the people who believes that our very extremely strict defamation laws are one of the reasons why it has been so hard to get good traction for Me Too stories in Australia. Um, I would also say that there were some areas of the media that um, really botched their response to Me Too. Um, my friend Nina Fennell has done incredible talk reporting on how certain individuals and organisations really, um, yeah, meant that the opportunity for a proper Me Too reckoning Australia kind of got botched. Um, but the defamation thing specifically, um, it really sucks. Um, and it's just that, if somebody comes out and makes a statement, um, they can then be sued for defamation and they have to prove the truth of their complaint to be able to have a sort of defense to the defamation lawsuit. 
Um, and when you're talking about matters that Me Too is airing, it's basically the same issue of not having CCTV footage or cuts and bruises. Like how are you supposed to prove the truth? Of yeah, like complaint? 80% of Weinstein's victims would not have passed that yeah, test no, or 100%. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, no way. Um, and so like one of the reasons why I'm so impressed with the way the High Court of Australia handled the Dyson Hayden complaints are uh, because they got in an external investigator um, and the way that was reported. So for anyone who doesn't know, I think it was six of Dyson Hayden's, who was a um, justice of the High Court of Australia, um, six, I think, of his former associates so these are people these are women who have just finished their law degrees are at the very beginning of their career he's a judge on the high court you know um six of them at least and then also a bunch of other women not his associates just other women in the legal profession came out with allegations about him um and one of the reasons i think that a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That was able to be reported on is because the reporting was on the findings of an investigation that was commissioned by the current head of the High Court. Mm -hmm. So the slight difference there is that the reporters were not only saying, um, oh, Jane Doe alleges XYZ. The reporters were saying, in a report commissioned by the High Court of Australia, the investigator found that X, Y, Z. And so that's how they were able to break that story. Um, but for the vast majority of other stories, when you don't have some kind of official, like super watertight document to be able to refer to, um, journalists won't touch it because the, the survivor themselves will be up for defamation, the journalist will be up for defamation, and the newspaper or whatever publication it is will be up for defamation. Um, and an egregious example of, of, I believe, professional misconduct um, was the Jeffrey Rush matter, mm. where mm. EJ, the woman involved, and did every, not want... Just quickly, like, everyone, yeah. anyone I know who works in theatre, like, everyone has a story about a story about a story about something that's notorious among yeah. individuals. And yeah. I completely yeah, agree. It was left to yeah. one girl. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she said that she never wanted her complaint to go, like, to go public, to go anywhere. The journalist and the editor involved um, have not only wreaked havoc in the lives of the individuals involved in that matter, 
but they have single-handedly had a chilling effect on the possibility for other people to come forward because now Jeffrey Rush has succeeded. And legally on the specific like grounds of that case, I'm not surprised at all that he succeeded in his defamation claim. That's a, like, God, any lawyer would have said, are you kidding? Um, and they've just ruined it. They've ruined it for, for so many other people. And it makes me furious. Um, and I've also, this is exactly what I've, I'm applying, considering and applying doing a PhD in a public interest journalism defence to defamation in Australia. So um, the Council of Attorneys General met earlier this year to talk about the various ways in which Australian defamation law is really lagging behind. And there are some kind of technical specific reasons for that about the moment of publication if things are on the internet. Um, but one of the other ones is that we are one of the only places compared to all of our common law sort of sister countries like the New Zealand, like the New Zealand, uh, the UK and Canada and New Zealand, all of those other places have really well-developed areas of law that say, if the journalist involved has been engaged in responsible journalism, um, and there's a sort of list of 10 kind of factors that the court will consider, and the thing they publish is defamatory, if they can prove that what they were doing was responsibly done, they won't be found guilty. Like they won't be charged, like they won't have to suffer the consequences of a successful defamation claim. And Australia is an absolute outlier in not having some kind of defense like that. Um, and so there is talk about bringing it in. And I am low key, very excited about what the results of that could, could be. Mm. Um, so we're going to jump to your book, Beauty. Uh, which was released this year and which is so fantastic. Um, so last and, year, sorry, sorry, last year, sorry. That last year. No, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, <laughs> 2020 has been going on for a long time. Um, yeah. And you talk about the fact that we equate aspiring to be more thin with other good aspirations in our life, like being better at work and being more mindful, etc. Um, there's a great quote where you say you'd started to feel content in yourself, but then feeling content made you feel complacent and that complacency meant you weren't striving and you didn't know how to be happy when you weren't striving, which both of us really relate to. Um, how have you kind of made sense of that struggle now? Because it can be very fucking hard to not think about your body all day, every day. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the first thing I would say is that if you've ever struggled with any, I'll speak for myself as somebody that has struggled with, like disordered eating behaviors and thought processes. I'm wary of anyone who's like bottling a story of like struggle and then solution and like, and you know, um, fixed fine forever. Now, what I would say is that I still sometimes will have those negative thoughts, but since researching and writing beauty, I have found new, honestly, it can be as simple as new vocabulary and new like ways of thinking that sort of intercept those thoughts and mean I don't act on them anymore. So for me, a huge thing um, was, I'm trying to put it into spoken words, was this idea of the second self, which is that like something I didn't realize that I had been doing a lot is picturing a version of me who was thinner and creating almost like an imagined life around that person because of course like once you're thinner you are more moral and you're more beautiful and it means you're working harder and you'll probably be more successful and all of these other 
elements of what we sort of consider for ourselves to be the good life sort of come mm. true and are true for this second person. And not only is that um, false um, and it's something that we um, are sold very much um, and it's something that we accidentally conflate with hard work because of these sort of ideas we have about determination and aspiration and self-care being such a sold thing now. But also if you tell yourself that you will have those happinesses when you are that weight, whatever it is. And for a lot of women I've spoken to, it will be like the weight that they were in their wedding dress or like the weight that they were before they had kids or the weight that they were when they started uni, like whatever it is, it's not really the point. It's just this idea of themselves. If you think that you will only have all of those other happinesses once you are, once you reach that weight or once you're back at that weight, you are stopping who you are right now from experiencing those happinesses and from putting your energy towards those happinesses directly, if those are what you really want. Um, and so now when I have negative thoughts about my body, because those don't just like miraculously go away once you've written a book about it. Um, what I actually think to myself is, well, what, negative impact on my life is on any other area of my life is this actually having and the answer almost always is none and what would i be losing if i acted on those negative feelings and the answer would be a lot um and it's just not letting that one tiny piece of your pie like one tiny sliver of your identity which is your body not letting that one tiny piece poison all of the other pieces even if you are having a day when you feel really shit about your body but does that affect necessarily your relationship no does that affect your work no does that affect your family and friends no like but there are still so many women i hear from and for a long time it was true for me as well where you could feel like you were killing it in every other area of your entire life. But if you wake up on Monday morning and try and put your pants on and they're too tight, it just shits all over everything and makes you feel like your entire life is a failure. And like, yeah, researching and writing beauty just gave me all of these new tools and all of this new vocab and self-understanding to, to circumvent those thoughts. So we were excited as well to see that you'd reference Naomi Wolf because we actually interviewed her for the 30th anniversary of the beauty myth this year. Sick. And yeah. And it's listen. Just, yeah. You yeah. have to have a listen. It was really, um, yeah, she's so cool, but she, we were shocked rereading the beauty myth at how relevant it still felt. And there was a big, a chapter that really resonated with us, which you mentioned too, was this idea of hunger and how I think in our interview, Naomi Wolf said something like, if her generation had not been starving themselves to look like Kate Moss, like what would they have been capable of doing as the first generation of truly empowered women? If they, if, if thinness. You were starving yourself. Yeah. Cause it dulls your intelligence. It dulls your, um, your energy. power, mm. energy, everything that makes you capable of achieving things. Um, so yeah, we kind of just wanted to talk to you about that whole conversation about how hunger can be probably not like intentionally, but a tool of subjugation for women. Mm, the line of hers that most resonated with me, which I'm obviously going to misquote is that um, we need to start thinking very specifically that self-esteem is a resource that is deliberately kept in short supply to women and girls. Mm. Um, and 
when I read that, it was a real watershed moment for me because like when we think about all of this stuff, like mansplaining and the myth of meritocracy and why women apologize all the time and why, you know, if you believe that stuff about women being less likely to ask for raises or why women are less assertive. And it's just like, there is, I don't know if it, I don't know if we even necessarily have a word for it, but whatever it is, it's very closely connected to self-esteem. It's like this sort of pool, like a, an inner resource of um, self-belief that people can like tap into that you can feed. And also that can run out if, if you're made to feel like shit all the time. Um, and yeah, it's a resource. And I, when I think of, what I would love from the women in my life who I think are awesome, it would be that whatever you want to call that resource is in infinite supply such that they can do the things that they're good at and that they set their mind to. And the hunger and the sort of gradual like degradation of that resource that comes when you hate your own body is very, very deep. Um, and it's very, very difficult to shake. Um, and I, yeah, I think if it's not, I think it's a deliberate tool of the patriarchy generally, obviously. Mm. And it, I like, we found it so interesting when you talked about Amy Winehouse and when you were highlighting the fact that she was obviously going through a very severe eating disorder that she'd been dealing with since she was really, really young. And that this obviously contributed to her death in the same way that alcohol and drugs did. Um, and you cite the fact that a huge majority of addicts also suffering from, also suffer from eating disorders, especially female drug addicts. Um, so we were kind of thinking like, why was this never part of the conversation about Amy? Hmm. Yeah. Well, people, yeah. So there's an incredible body of research around this um and a book i would recommend to anyone who wants to read more or who might be affected by these issues themselves is woman of substances by jenny valentish um it's a heavy read uh content warning on that one but there are huge connections um between self-harm disordered eating and substance abuse and substance abuse can be alcohol it can be um drugs it can also be something as seemingly simple as smoking um and one sort of simple thing that i think is very illustrative of a broader problem is that women find it much harder to quit smoking in general than men do because when they quit smoking they put on weight um and we still treat lots of different types of substance abuse and and addiction related challenges as though a one size fits all approach might work. But these things are often very, very gendered. And the line between self-harm and disordered eating is like often that's not even a line. Like that's, mm. that is a complex interaction of things that trigger each other that are caused by the same triggers. Um, and I think this example of Amy Winehouse is just very telling because somehow it's also like, obviously extraordinarily shit that um, being an alcoholic is considered sort of part of the rock and roll lifestyle. I'm not saying that's okay at all, but what I think is very obvious is that alcoholism is a cool type of rock and roll, whereas bulimia is not a cool type of rock and roll. Um, and that 
she was getting thinner and thinner as she saw more and more success. And the people in her life who consistently let her down, which becomes very obvious when you watch her documentary or read more widely about the last sort of five years of her life, um, it's pretty easy to see why those people would have reinforced bad ideas about her body rather than encouraging her to get healthy. Um, and that's, I think hers is a very extreme example of a problem that a lot of people struggle with. Mm. We really liked the part where you talked about Alex Perry and that 2014 runway show where he used this just outrageously um, thin model and got criticised for it. And he kind of said, I would never put a model that thin on the runway. It was the casting director. And me and Izzy both worked in magazines and the idea of the, the, the buck being passed around and no one taking responsibility was just always really obvious. It was, you know we have to um, hire a really thin model because we've only got certain samples and they need to fit into them. Or um, it's not the editor's fault because the editor's just placating to advertisers and blah, blah, blah. And it just becomes this kind of constant thing where no one's taking personal responsibility. Um, in your research for beauty, what did you kind of find in terms of how um, the fashion system especially lacks accountability? Yeah, basically just what you've described where nobody wants to admit that they have any control over the reiteration of the same like very specific type of body that clothes are presented on. Um, and just that it seems like maybe we are at the precipice of change. And an example of that is the slow death of Victoria's Secret, which is being um, supplanted by the rise of Rihanna's Fenty. Mm. Um, and there's an interaction there between consumer power and sort of, I'll say editorial power, you know, like from the publishing or from the fashion world, the fashion and publishing, publishing sort of infrastructure imagined as coming from above and the consumers as coming from below and the consumers by, you know, we say like voting with our wallets can communicate to brands and designers what we um, care about. But of course that change has been extraordinarily slow to probably sort of start hitting any kind of um, mass numbers because the overwhelming message that we've received from above for the last like every single decade since mass communication became a thing, um, is this one very specific image of, of the female body. Um, and I just, I find it really pathetic now after really spending a long time with it. I find it, for example, really pathetic and boring when I see brands still use images of Kate Moss. Um, and I find it really pathetic and boring when designers who we supposedly admire who I know I admire for their creativity and their originality and their ability to see beauty in unusual places in unusual ways and and for that just you would hope a sense of originality and when they just keep using this same female form that just has always been that way I just find it really underwhelming and pathetic um, and it's and the inverse is really, really exciting, which is when I see designers and brands who do just have a like varying bodies. And that's not just 
body shape and thinness, but it's also women of color, it's trans women, it's women with disabilities, it's everything. Like when I see brands really doing that, I it like I actually find it really genuinely exciting because what that tells me is that the people who are behind that brand or behind that publication actually have an exciting way of thinking instead of constantly looking to the past. I don't want to wear clothes by people who think like that. Um, the last thing we wanted to ask you was about your new book, Brains, which very much focuses on kind of who gets to be smart and the cultural systems that allow people to thrive in academic settings. So can you talk to us a little bit about your research for that book? Yeah. And when I mean, it comes like out. The, yeah, I'm in the final stages of it now. Um, should I'm supposed to finish it this month, um, which is terrifying. So the big thing is that um, the original plan was that it would be a sister essay to Beauty. So Beauty is an essay length book, which is like just about 25,000 words um, for any readers who like the quarterly essay published by Black Ink. Um, it's about the same length as that. Um, and Brains was originally going to be 25,000 words. Um, and to get started on it, I flew over to Oxford and um, hung out with my f- brilliant friend, Damien, who had just been named a Rhodes Scholar. Um, and an idea I wanted to investigate was that if, if you sort of believed the kind of um, almost criteria sheet that was handed to a lot of us in primary and high school and then more extremely at university, if you believed that that's what this sort of academic sense of intelligence or achievement or success looks like, then getting a Rhodes Scholarship was one of a very few number of kind of examples of the absolute apex of like achievement on that criteria sheet. So I went over and visited Damien and, and started researching the Rhodes Scholarship um, and started asking questions about Rhodes Must Fall and Cecil Rhodes's legacy and what that tells us about places like Oxford more broadly than, of course, what that tells us about Australia as a good little colonial outpost trying to impress the motherland um, and all of the sort of really rank colonial things that flow from that that are very, very deeply ingrained in institutions in particular. And so I was asking all of these questions um, and then I hit onto research about the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization, which is, I'm not gonna go into it too much, but it's um, the board of the Ramsey Center for Western Civilization include, for example, John Howard and Tony Abbott. And they have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that a very rich man who's now died gave to them to encourage people to study and read about how the Western civilization is the best of all of the, yeah. Um, And they wanted to set up Ramsey centers for Western civilization at universities. And they went to ANU Australian National University and University of Sydney and a few others first and the academics there um, told them basically to fuck off because they the board who are politicians very much it's a very like political thing um, thought that they could basically buy their way into these universities um, and control hiring and firing and which students got these extraordinarily large scholarships And Tony Abbott, who is a Rhodes Scholar, decided that these 
people, the students who get these extraordinary scholarships would be called Ramsey scholars. Like it's a little like Rhodes oh. 2.0. Like it's really, um, yeah. Well, Crazy. Anyway. I'm surprised that like wasn't a bigger story when I, yeah. I guess I wasn't reading well enough. <laughs> so um, they went to their, what it looks pretty obvious from the outside that they went to like the best, you know, unis in Australia who told them absolutely not. And when they couldn't get a foothold there, they went to, um, I think, Wollongong and the Australian Catholic University and got yeses from those two by, um, at, at the Australian Catholic University, I think it was, they had to buy, just completely bypass the academic senate. Um, and the guy who ran ACU at the time is like an old mate of Abbott's. And it's all like very, the way the Ramsey Centre stuff rolls out is just that it's very obviously this, I consider to be yuck old boys network where they all just have a huge amount of money and conservative power. And then at the very end of 2019, the Ramsey Centre announced that their third and sort of final for now university placement would be at my alma mater, University of Queensland. Um, and that they would start classes in 2020. So that happened and that sent me into a big extra research spiral. And then of course, 2020 happened, particularly with um, COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter. And so what we saw with COVID-19 was that in Australia, the federal government changed the definitions and parameters of the JobKeeper um, stimulus program three times in order to be able to specifically exclude universities. And what we're seeing now is just thousands of job losses and like absolute devastation to the university sector and then also that combined with black lives matter where we are uh asking um no people have been asking these questions for a long time but it's sort of hit a critical mass that the rest of the sort of population i.e white people in australia are starting to think about statues and legacies and the importance of who places are named after and what that means for making education available to everyone um, and whose statues we want in our public spaces and much obviously deeper questions about national identity and colonial history. So all of that stuff happened and it just became very obvious that the questions I had started asking in 2018, sorry, when I first went to Oxford, um, had a lot of bigger and unfortunately more extreme examples in given to me by just reading the news in 2020. So now it's going to be a book. Um, and the overarching question is, yeah, who gets to be smart? Um, basically, it's not so much about kind of like IQ tests or like any sense, although that is very hotly debated about a kind of biological um, quality that you could even call intelligence. It's about who has access to the kinds of experiences and degrees which our society then labels the recipients of as smart so it's basically about how all of our educational institutions from like kindy and prep in particular through to secondary school and university are exacerbating social stratification rather than making it more and more accessible and the worst example of it is something like the ramsey center mm. Sounds amazing. That's so interesting. Yeah. <sighs> Sorry. I don't even, I'm not no, at a no, stage yet so where I know great. how to explain it in a. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. That was great. It needs to Your be Anna. like um, a Netflix series, like um, 
the family or something. Mm, I would need to get it optioned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, make some calls. We'll speak to our friends at Netflix and sort Let's it out. Let's produce it, Grace. Yeah, we'll produce it. You've got exec producers here. Um, thank you thank so much. Thank you so much, Bree. You thank have you so for having amazing me. brain. It's yeah, you're so fucking it. smart. It's like seven, seven in the morning here, and I'm like, I'm so dumb. <laughs> No, 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 no. That's not the. That's not, that's not the, the aim. Brains. Yeah. I'm like blushing. Just like the <laughs> color of the books on the red shelf. Um, <laughs> no. Well, if everything goes according to plan, brains will be out in mid next year. Um, Amazing. And I mean, I just yeah, I just really hope for everyone's sake um, that 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 things are some to some degree back to normal by then. Um, at least in Australia. I don't know. Yeah. Come visit us in London, tour it over here. Yeah, do yeah. A, a book tour to London and we'll shout you a drink. Yeah, and we'll go get <laughs> margaritas. Yeah. Uh, I can promise you if I got a book deal in the UK, I would happily shout the two of you a drink. <laughs> Thank you. Lowly finances okay. over here. <laughs> um, Thanks so nice to talk to you, Brie. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a lovely day. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.